by not being evolved right in the beginning, we allowed corruption to, to happen. We allowed policies to be put in and things to fly, fly under the radar. We thought that just voting once every four years or five years would, would uh, solve all the problems, but unfortunately it doesn't. How can we as ordinary citizens mobilize against hostile government action? Well, somebody who knows plenty about this is Rob Hutchinson. He is the chairman and the founder of Dear South Africa. Rob Hutchinson, welcome to Solutions with David Ansara. Thank you, David. Thanks for having me on. So let's start off with why you started DRSA and what does DRSA do? It was, it's quite an interesting story, to, to tell you the truth. It started back in the ETOL days when we were fighting ETOLs. At the time, I was uh, part of uh, ALTA, and the whole argument against, against ETOLs was there was a lack of public participation in the decision-making process. And that, that brought out a, a lot of flaws in the system and also created a lot, a lot of opportunities. I think in, in, in that case, only 25 people responded to an advert that was placed in, in, the, in national or local newspapers. And government went ahead and ticked the box and said, yes, we consulted with, with the public and therefore adequate public participation had taken place which of course it hadn't. You know, to, to this day, we still don't know who responded, who those 25 respondents were, or what the content of their submissions were. So when, when, when I left ARTA, which was about four, four or five years ago, then I saw an opportunity to create an organization that does facilitate public participation in an open and transparent, transparent manner. And that's pretty much what, what we do. We scan the government gazettes, we go through other notices, and we rely on the public to inform us of things that we might, might have missed. And then we build a campaign around that. We, we don't run petitions as such, which uh, most organizations do. Uh, our process makes sure that every person who does make a comment has their voice represented in a legal format as an individual submission on on whatever the call for comment may be. And uh, that's generally in response to policy amendments, uh, proposals, and, and so on. So we make, uh, we do reports on, on public participation, which we send through to parliament, as well as each individual comment, and keep the whole, the whole process absolutely transparent. So government can't turn around and say, well, we only had 25 respondents on this, when all agreed, we, we actually hold, hold the data and can challenge government at a later stage should, should the need, need require, be required. This process is distinct from a petition where you might just be gathering names. Here with DRSA's method, you as an individual citizen are actually empowered to make your own submission through the DRSA platform. Is that an accurate reflection? That is absolutely correct. Yeah. So it's, as I said, it's not a petition because, you know, in a petition, uh, everybody's agreeing to the, the mandate of that petition. And therefore, government, even if a signature, ha even if a petition has over a million signatures, government will treat it as a single submission because everyone has, has agreed to, to the mandate as set out there. Whereas ours, 
uh, each comment that people make is presented as an individual submission, which under the constitutional law, government has to uh, acknowledge and consider in the final decision-making process. So it's become quite a powerful tool as far as educating the public about uh, changes in the, the governmental process and the legislative process, as, as well as uh, creating quite an impact in, in policy formation. Government now has to go through thousands, sometimes hundreds of thousands of, of comments to actually uh, formulate correct, correct policy. And that's, it's great now because before government would go ahead, there'd be a very one-sided process, but now we've actually generated enough power to influence where the public has the opportunity to influence policy before it's implemented. And could you give us some examples of recent campaigns that DRSA has run and how effective were they? Sure, we've run, I'd say approaching 300 campaigns to date over the past four years. Uh, complete 300 campaigns. Um, some of the big ones, we had uh, quite a significant participation in the NHI, uh, the land expropriation care process. I think in the land expropriation process, we uh, sent about, I think they, there were four separate uh, uh, campaigns there. We sent over over half a million individual uh, comments through to, to government throughout those, those various processes. And that, that created quite a significant impact there. It's just the can has just been kicked down the road. And as we know, uh, government recently, the committee voted and they voted against amending the constitution. So yeah, other campaigns, uh, recent ones are COVID health regulations. They, we've had a fantastic uh, uptake in, in participation over 305,000 uh, uh, comments on amending the Health Act and adopting regulations. And you know, we've been pretty active throughout, throughout the COVID period on, on addressing regulations as, as the minister publishes them. In some cases, the minister allowed 48 hours for comments. Didn't make a difference for us. We still managed to send about 12,000 during, during one of those processes. And it has created quite a significant impact where we've had regulations withdrawn um, or amended and, and so on. And I think what we did with the IRR recently was the, the amendments to the Electoral Act, the Electoral Act Amendment Bill. And the, uh, you, the IRR picked up a, a publication or a notice published, published in one newspaper and there was nothing published in the government gazette so the first thing we did was request an extension which was granted and then in one week we managed to send through just under thirteen thousand individual comments to to government all raising concerns around a, a new form of voting in the assumption was electronic voting was going to be introduced and they the result of that was the uh, policy was was amended, and they withdrew the the, the that clause. So, again, it's 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 quite powerful in influencing policy before it gets pushed through, and that avoids expensive court cases or lengthy processes after the fact. Yeah, and I think the EWC example is a good one because 
here was this hostile policy that was put on the table that was going to undermine property rights and severely damage the economy and also people's mm. uh, personal freedom uh, to to own what they own. Um, and I think that there was a good example of a multi-pronged strategy because in addition to the usual uh, letters to the editor and op-eds and mm -hmm. public campaigns, it's also saying, well, actually we need you on our side to, to kind of push back against this. And yeah, eventually, as you said, that uh, ad hoc committee, their proposal to amend section 25, that was ultimately voted down. And I think that that yes. kind of pincer mover mm -hmm maneuver of pressure, I think really, really helped a lot. And okay. the electoral amendment bill as well, you know, I think that that was a very good example of a successful speedy resolution uh, to what would also be quite a damaging policy. So, I mean, I think it's easy to get despondent in South Africa about the, the myriad uh, bad laws. Uh, I think we have a department of bad laws uh, that is working very actively. <laughs> it's the most productive department in the government. Um, but, uh, you know, I think it, it, it also shows that, you know, there's this theory of balance of forces that the ANC government will advance a certain policy agenda until they reach resistance. And so that's why it's very important to, uh, you know, to have that resistance there, uh, to ab absorb that, uh, that advancement. Um, exactly. so I think, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I think the difference, the difference is that we, uh, we, we provide the participant an opportunity to either agree, disagree, or uh, not, we call it not fully, not fully agree or disagree. So they have three options, and you can easily see which, which way the, the policy goes and, and if the, the public are, are upset about it, because we offer, offer that choice. And we acknowledge that, that people will support some policies and be against other policies. And I think that's that raises a, a quite an interesting uh, a point or, or source of information there, because we can go into the insights and figure out why do people support bad policy, and is it a case of misunderstanding or not realizing the consequences thereof, and then we can address it from 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 that issue. And the same goes for good policy. Our government does once in a while, once in a blue moon, put out put out some good policy, and that the same the same would apply there why are people supporting it or why are people not supporting it and that, that does uh, offer a different angle to to petitions at, as such yeah so rob i was uh, watching some football the other day and i saw stadia in europe filled with uh, unmasked people uh, but then <laughs> when i go to woolworths on a saturday morning to do my shopping i'm still required to wear a mask and it seems that there's uh, this kind of lingering long tail to many of the COVID regulations. Um, and I'd like to speak about DRSA's role during the lockdown. Uh, you, you know, I think initially there was a lot of uncertainty, uh, a lot of fear, obviously, that motivated a very strong response from the government. But as we learned more about the virus and its pattern of behavior, and as uh, the virus became more endemic, um, it seemed that a lot of the initial strong reaction was maybe unwarranted, uh, but the the kind of poorly judged regulations still persisted. Uh, what what was DRSA's role during the lockdown? And then we can maybe speak about how uh, the regulations are evolving and what role you continue to play. Look, the I think COVID provided fantastic opportunities for all all civil society organisations, in that we all suddenly became extremely aware of governmental processes 
as 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 public or as a citizens. You know, before people weren't quite involved in the process, they didn't quite understand how laws and regulations are are promulgated. But uh, during COVID, everyone was was uh, granted an opportunity to to view the insights of of uh, policy formation. And we seized that opportunity as a public participation uh, organization when the minister put out new regulations under the Disaster Management Act. We had to question some of them, open-toed shoot, warm dinners, uh, ban on, on, on e-commerce, uh, certain restrictions on, on exercise windows, and, and many more closing of schools, and, and so on. So we, we ran several campaigns throughout, throughout uh, COVID, and we are, we're still, some of which are still, still running. And all in response to two regulations and irregularities uh, amongst those. We were quite successful in influencing uh, uh, and the withdrawal of regulations. Uh, one was e-commerce. We could not understand why, why that was banned. So we, we challenged uh, the minister at, at the time and that that was withdrawn. Uh, it, it's great. You know, we, we, sometimes we don't get the credit or even seek to get credit on, on, what, on what we do. We just want to see it get done. So a lot of other parties jumped on, on the bandwagon, including political parties and saying, oh, we, we, we did this. And we don't mind. We don't mind. We, we know we wrote letters to, to the ministers, showed the public participation and gave a set a deadline um, uh, to respond or withdraw by a certain date which is exactly what, what the minister did uh, on, on three separate occasions. And um, because of that, we've, we decided to focus heavily uh, on, on COVID regulations, the Health Act, Disaster Management Act, and everything else related to, to unwarranted uh, lockdowns, but with, a, with, an open, with an open eye, rather than oppose everything that comes out, we wanted to hear the public's, public's view on, on, on these matters. And then we, we acted uh, legally you know, through the courts um, based on the feedback from, from, from the public. So we didn't act and represent ourselves. We represented all, all participants in South Africa, you know, South African citizens in, in general. And yeah, it, it's been an absolutely great time. Uh, well, I wouldn't say great time during COVID, but it's been an interesting time without a doubt. We've definitely grown as, as an organization. The uh, public and one of our main functions as an organization is to educate the public to, to the importance of getting involved in democracy at a day-to-day -day level, not just at elections. And COVID certainly did provide that, that opportunity and that, sort of that awakening. So yeah, it's been a good time during during COVID for us. <laughs> I go back to saying it's a good time, but it it has has worked well. The fight is still still on with the shift of the uh, regulations once housed under the temporary disaster management act. They are now being moved to be permanent under under the uh, national health act, and that is a major concern for us because. Even the regulations that were once set aside, like uh, isolation measures and forced quarantine and, and so on, have crept back. 
they they back into the into the proposed regulations for the Health Act, and if they are accepted, they will become permanent uh, under the Health Act because it is, of course, a permanent piece of legislation. Whereas the Disaster Management Act, although set aside now uh, for for COVID purposes, the regulations seem to be still in place, and that's also created confusion as to what the what's actually going on in Parliament. So when when the Disaster Management Act was withdrawn by the president, they had in place what they call uh, temporary regulations or interim regulations, and those uh, uh, mask wearing and social distancing and venue capacities were were still in still in place. Those temporary regulations were only supposed to be there for I think they actually called them limited limited regulations were only there supposed to be there for thirty days in a cool down period. However, those, those regulations in particular have now been adopted to be permanent under the Health Act. And that was without any public consultation or, or review process or, or comment, comments from, from the public. In the meantime, they've uh, put a set of draft regulations together, uh, which were what were once housed under the Disaster Management Act. And the intention with those is to move them to be permanent under the Health Act. And those are the ones that are currently open for, for public comment. Uh, our main thought is that they will slowly move certain regulations one at a time or a handful at a time to be permanent, as, as they did with those uh, limited regulations, and which makes the whole public participation process on, on those draft regulations kind of pointless, kind of pointless. But nonetheless, that's why we have uh, taken the minister to court on, on the regulations, on the limited regulations and the anti-draft regulations. And we'll be in court on the 26th to the 28th of July, challenging all of that. If successful, uh, I've never, I'm always hesitant to say when successful, but if successful, we will we should be uh, set a precedent, precedent there and perhaps a global precedent as well as to how to challenge uh, a government that definitely seems to be overreaching as far as uh, regulations and limiting regulations goes. Yeah, and I think it's very important to, to check that excessive state power, Rob. Uh, mm. So you mentioned litigation. I mean, how does litigation form part of your strategy? So it's not just that you're making submissions to parliament or whichever government department, you're actively taking on bad policies as well in the courts. Uh, yes. how, how successful have you been in the legal arena and what is your approach? The approach is, is, is pretty simple. We act on in favor of the participants. And if a the public participation process has been uh, flouted or ignored, then we, we have an obligation to, to challenge it in its entirety. And the objective there is to either restart the public participation process or have it set aside and uh, declared as, as unconstitutional. And we've been very successful in, in, our, in our court cases uh, so far. The, the first lot was uh, getting the certain regulations right in the beginning, I think it was in 2020, having certain regulations withdrawn that, that worked out very well. And we've challenged many other pieces of legislation that we seem 
well that the public informs us or participants inform us uh, to be incorrect. So if government goes ahead and implements something where uh, the public have, come, have wholly obje objected to it, then we will we will act in favour of of the, of the participants and and have that uh, addressed in court. And most of the time, uh, government uh, retracts. They 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 announce that they're going to uh, challenge or uh, challenge our our application, but then they retract at a later stage once presented with the evidence of of public participation. It's an incredibly powerful motivator, and obviously government is is afraid of of backlash from from the public or from us or from other uh, organizations that we collaborate with so rob i think something that i've really admired about drsa is the way that you've used technology to highlight these issues to facilitate public participation and a lot of people are quite pessimistic about the disruptive role of technology in terms of the impact that it's had on democracy uh, you know, you see lots of uh, hand-wringing op-eds about misinformation and things like that. But, you know, I think that there's a huge positive upside to the internet and the way that it's been able to highlight and disseminate uh, the, the dangers of these bad policies and also mobilize people. Uh, how do you go about using technology in terms of marketing and uh, disseminating your campaigns? Oh, well, technology is is at the forefront of of everything we do. the The platform is is an online platform, and it operates by by user input. So uh, it's it's been an absolute wonderful wonderful opportunity to uh, first of all inform people that we use social media extensively for that, and of course um, an email database which we have gathered from each 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 campaign. Every time someone does participate, they are added to the communication database. Well, of course, they can unsubscribe at any time they want, but uh, we use it to inform people, keep them updated, keep them in, in the loop as to what's coming up, presenting new information, and so on. Our database sits at about 1.4 million subscribers currently, and it's grown at an absolute rapid rate. Social media has also been absolutely wonderful. Uh, we have a fantastic Telegram group with about just under 10,000 subscribers in that. And that is instant communication. It works really, really well. We use that to uh, put out news articles, um, some from us, some from other organizations, a lot from the media, but all relevant to, to policy and perhaps the campaigns that we're running uh, currently. Our Facebook page is approaching 200,000 uh, members right now, and also the same strategy as as the uh, tele Telegram group, and then of course Twitter and everything else. But the the main technology is obviously in in the participation platform itself, and that has really made it really incredibly simple for any anyone, uh, no matter who you are, to to have your say. It can be mobile based. It work. It's built for for mobile. And as I think about 90% of our participants do do so, uh, do participate through through their mobile, and it's it's really simple. You, it takes you not not more than two and a half minutes to ha have your say, have your voice represented in in Parliament uh, on 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 a policy, and of course, uh, it's given us great insights as to 
as to the public sentiment and certain demographics and certain groups and even geolocation does influence people's understanding around around policy which gives us an opportunity to to clarify issues or to to distribute correct information you know there's a lot of a lot of misinformation that that does go around as, as we know and the sources can sometimes be rather interesting we can we've seen misinformation coming from from government even and you know do chop and change or different departments in government have totally different interpretations of of certain laws and and amendments which is quite concerning but it's it's been great the one problem we do we do face is that because it's online it does limit access to those who have uh, who, who, or who don't have internet access or or a smartphone as such but we do have plans and a working relationship with uh, certain uh, uh, provincial legislatures and with national assembly to uh, address those issues so we're working a lot lo uh, lately with the new parliamentary constituency officers and we help we can or we actually are currently doing a a public participation education program to get people more involved and then hopefully parliament will uh, realize the need for a, a a zero rated portal so it doesn't use data and and so on which is already in in discussion so parliament might sponsor it or uh, convince a service provider to provide the the data data free portal which will dramatically change things and allow anyone to to have their say i suppose one of the risks would be that you're overly dependent on these social media platforms like Facebook, for example, you know, if they don't like a particular tone or emphasis of your campaign, they could perhaps mm -hmm. shadow ban it or deplatform it. Do you think that that's a risk for DRSA's ambitions? It is. It is something we have, have considered, which is why we've been focusing on um, developing Telegram and growing our main form of communication, which is the email database. Um, alongside that, as we expand into markets that might not have access to email, then we uh, gather phone numbers, uh, we can send out an SMS or a WhatsApp to, to get those people uh, in engaged and keep them engaged. Um, I don't think Facebook, uh, they haven't, in fact, they have only banned one of, of our campaigns, and that was something to do with the Firearms Control Act. Obviously. Facebook does not like to promote anything that's to do with firearms um, and actually said that we they banned it because it appears we're selling firearms, which is clearly, clearly not the case. Yeah. But other than that, because we don't present petitions, we actually allow people to have their say whether for or against. I think Facebook treats it slightly, slightly different to what we do uh, to, to other petitions. And well, we've been been quite lucky with with leniency on on Facebook distribution, and it has worked well for us. So, Rob, what do you make of the state of democracy in South Africa today? Because, you know, on the one hand, a lot of our democratic institutions have taken enormous strain. Uh, you know, if you just mm. think of the last few years, for example, the National Prosecuting Authority has been you know, riven uh, by corruption, um, particularly under the the Zuma years. Uh, you know, our state-owned enterprises have been abused. Uh, our, and, you know, many of the checks and balances, the public protector, 
you know, these don't really seem to be working in the way that was envisioned. But on the other hand, we have organizations like DRSA, which reflect a kind of vibrancy of civil society. And, uh, you know, a lot of particularly left-wing commentators are often very proud of saying, you know, we have a very uh, robust civil society. But actually, if you look during the lockdown, a lot of the left-wing civil society groups were a bit absent, actually, um, in kind Completely. of standing up for, for citizen rights. Whereas, you know, groups like Afroforum uh, were also, you know, very, uh, very vocal and very active, um, you know, uh, and dare I say too. So, I mean, wh what is your kind of measure of the state of democracy in South Africa? Where are we doing well and where are we not doing so, so well? I think if you had asked me that question, say, two years ago, you know, I would have said we're in a dismal state, a dismal state of democracy. We're leaning towards... Uh, trusting trusting government far too much, and uh, letting them letting them get away with with things without question. However, uh, COVID certainly changed that. We became more aware of of government overreach, and government kind of shot themselves in the foot with ridiculous regulations and so on. And uh, I think we've seen a, a definite uh, strong push towards true true democracy especially from the ground up, not so much from, from the top down. From the top down, it's definitely more of an author authoritarian uh, push with more, more regulations, more restrictions, taking the erosion of, of, of people's rights and, and so on. And it, it's a slow process of, of erosion from the top. And not many people are aware of it because it's a slow process, obviously and they're willing to sacrifice their rights for the greater good or for the good good of others which never works out absolutely never works out government will always take advantage of the greater good or or as i should say their favorite term is in the public interest so government can i think they feel that they can overwrite certain regulations or, or clauses in the constitution if it's in the the public interest and the that's a very loose term yeah it's always in the government's interest in, in fact <laughs> that's very good but you know, the public in the in the public interest is such a broad term it really really has no no legal standing anywhere because you you simply cannot prove what is in the public interest without asking each and every individual south african if it is in their interest which government definitely does not do so yeah i think our democracy seems to be strengthening from the bottom up but weakening from from the top down which is is going to create a very interesting situation when the two ends meet and i think we're approaching that point right now with where the two ends will meet we're seeing significant pushback on all our campaigns to absolutely anything the government proposes which is maybe not a good thing and uh, to you, you, you noted left wing and right wing there, and I can I can say that because we have a, a left wing government, there's no doubt we have a more active right wing civil society. It just stands to reason if we had a right wing government, we'd have a more more active left wing left wing civil society, and that's reflected in 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 each of our campaigns. You know, it definitely most of our campaigns our campaigns tend to take a, a, a right a right-wing stance that's simply because the the people who lean to the right are more are more vocal more active 
in 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 speaking out against the government and we've provided them with a platform to to do so we've we also engage we open up the each campaign to any organization that wants to collaborate no matter which side of of the fence they stand on and we hardly ever get any in fact hardly ever get any uh, response from from left-leaning organizations it's generally the right-wing organizations that want to want to collaborate and and put up their comments and their their opinion so hopefully we'll see a, a shift in a balance to to provide proper proper democracy or at least from from our platform from up but we expect pushback from from the government and the various sections within or factions within the anc to uh, drive drive their agenda and of course we can't allow that to happen yeah and i think that's what's interesting about the ir is they've been neither left-wing nor right-wing but kind of uh, i don't know centrist not quite the the term but uh, the classical mm -hmm. liberal uh, center why do you think the the left-wing organizations have have been a, a, a bit uh, muted during this time rob i think it's definitely the unwillingness to go against anything government says put it that way it could also be uh, their sources of funding most most organizations are are bound to to grants and the um terms and conditions that the the grantee does does stipulate and uh, i mean we can talk about that for days as to who, who funds most of these organizations but I, th I think it's definitely to do to do with that. You can't go against the. You don't bite the hand that feeds you, at the end, at the end of the day, and that makes a lot of left wing organisations hesitant to uh, step up or speak out or, or anything, which is crazy. Which is crazy because they should be participating, even if they are in favour of something. They should still should still have their say, and and push out the the questions that arise. Perhaps it's perhaps it's because we you know if you're not opposing something in in the left-wing eye then you are the enemy if you don't agree with them then then they are the enemy and the mere fact that our platform offers uh, an opportunity for both sides to present their present their views we don't necessarily agree with with any views that, that go forward but if the majority of participants are opposed to a left-wing view then the left-wing organizations will simply avoid it they, they won't engage at all. Uh, I mean, it's quite sad, really. They, they, they should do it. And it wasn't always the case. I mean, if you think of the TAC, no. I mean, they played a really critical role in uh, activating the government to roll out antiretrovirals, and it was a very important human rights yes. achievement, I think. But uh, you mentioned funding, Rob, and I mean, how does DRSA fund its myriad activities? Because it must get quite pricey after a while. I mean, I think of... Uh, yes, it does. 1.5 million or so on your email subscription list. If I look at MailChimp and uh, MailerLite, uh, that's probably costing you a pretty penny. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. So we've developed a lot of in-house in systems to avoid the, those costs. Uh, if we, we worked it out, if we had to use MailChimp to distribute our newsletter, say, once a week, it would cost us a quarter of a million rand a month. To, to send it out, so it's absolutely ridiculous. So we had to develop our, our own in-house systems that do it, um, mostly working through Amazon uh, AWS systems. And we were awarded a grant from, from Amazon themselves of $20,000 in Amazon credits, which has helped considerably. We built a whole uh, framework around the whole environment 
and obviously the email sending service is is fantastic so we operate through quite a few grants we've just been awarded a grant from the african union to expand into all african union uh, member states so there will soon be a dear kenya and dear tanzania and and, and so on pretty much doing exactly uh, what dear dear south africa does but dealing with local governments and and so on and then there's also plans to in fact we've already started the process to launch a global platform deargov.org and that will uh, again be uh, dealing with uh, issues around around the globe and interacting with local governments as as the need, needs may be we then also uh, receive a, a fair amount of, of donations from participants and um, some of which most of which are, are once-off donations um, but we do have a, an initiative in place that secures monthly donations through 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 debit order from from the public, and it's been quite effective, I, I must say, simply because I, I think we don't you know, we don't fight government as as such, but if we are compelled to, then then we will challenge them. So when applying for for a grant, you, we present ourselves as what we really are, and that is we're an organization that helps government be a better government rather than an organization that challenges government at, at every opportunity. So Rob, earlier you mentioned this distinction between uh, top-down and bottom-up, and on this show, I've been quite a strong advocate for political decentralization and ordinary individuals taking it upon themselves to solve some of these more intractable social and political problems. What, what do you think is the importance of citizens getting involved in the participatory democratic process? And, you know, it can be maybe a bit dispiriting when you look around and you see all of the things going wrong in South Africa, but there's a lot of power that people have as individuals and coordinating their actions uh, can achieve pretty incredible results as we've shown in this conversation. So how can people get involved? Uh, what can they do to, to achieve a, a better South Africa? It's definitely, as you say, David, it's getting involved in, in the day-to-day -day, uh, bits of democracy and democracy is hard work. Let's, let's not kid ourselves to maintain, to maintain a healthy democracy. You, you have to be involved in, in the decision-making process without a doubt. We, we all too often, I think we made the mistake <laughs> right, right in the beginning of, of our new democracy as to, oh, it's a rainbow nation. We can just sit, sit back and, and let the new government do their thing. And at the end of the day, we were fools to think that nothing would go wrong. It's, it, our government and officials are only human and we, we, you know, we fall prey to, to immense power, no matter who you are, but it does definitely affect you. So by not being involved right in the beginning, we allowed corruption to, to happen. We allowed policies to be put in and things to fly, fly under the radar. We thought that just voting once every four years or five years would, would uh, solve all the problems, but unfortunately it doesn't being involved in in the decision and especially on policy formation is is what is required on a daily basis the issue there is that not many people 
understand the intricacies of of a legal document of which a, an amendment to policy is and government relies on that so we we try and summarize it break it down into layman's terms uh, collaborate with organizations such as yourselves and the IRR to uh, or anyone any organization to present a, a user-friendly uh, version of, of policy and highlight the, the the dangers, the threats, and the good points of, of that policy. And then, of course, allow people to have their say. And I must say, David, it has actually created a, a shift in the balance of power. We all, we all we've really done is we've shifted the power back to, to the people where it should be in, in a democracy and we challenging the elected officials who are meant to represent their constituencies, but clearly have not been doing so. So now we hold them accountable. And uh, I think we've changed quite a, quite a bit of the workings inside Parliament at the various levels now, where they've understood that the uh, public being involved uh, to such a great extent on on, on policy formation and and public participation can be a threat to to a government that wants to uh, introduce overbearing or overreaching overreaching legislation the public have definitely become more aware of it and uh, the pushback or or uh, providing input is is has definitely grown and it's that's one wonderful thing to say uh, to see is that shift of of power back to the people the last bastion of democracy is probably public participation. Well, Rob Hutchinson, I think that democracy is not just a set of laws or institutions. It's also a culture and a mindset. And I think DRSA really represents that that approach and that attitude. So I wanted to wish you all the very best with your work, strength to your arm. And we hope that you can continue to make the massive contribution to South Africa's democracy into the future. Thanks, David. We, we plan to be here for a long time. It's not just, you know, it's not just, yes, it was just perhaps my, my idea brought, brought on about by other things, but it's certainly uh, a lot bigger than, than, than just me or just DRSA or, or anything else. Uh, to see an effective change in, in the government, the changes we want to see, requires collaboration, especially among civil society society uh, groups and, organ and individuals and organizations. Without, without collaboration and a common goal or a common interest, uh, we, are, we are doomed. But we've definitely seen that and, and we'll continue to, to push that. Thank you so much. Thanks for watching. If you enjoyed this conversation, please do remember to like this video and subscribe to the channel. Also, I'd be keen to hear your feedback on the show. What do you enjoy about it? Where can I improve? Please leave your thoughts in the comment section down below. Also, do remember to subscribe on audio as well. We're active on all of the major podcast platforms. My name is David Ansara. This is the Solutions Podcast. Until next time, take care.